Welcome to Martha Runs the World, a podcast with a new take on running, fitness, and all things health-oriented. I'm Martha Hughes, your host, and each week I present a new topic that is of interest to all runners. Hi, and welcome to episode 165 of Martha Runs the World. Steve Sashin is co-owner of Zero Shoes and is my guest this week. We're going to talk all about what minimalist running shoes are and the beginnings of the company, his running, his sprinting. He doesn't call himself a runner. He calls himself a sprinter and all of that in a moment. But first, I wanted to let you know that I started a Buy Me a Coffee page for Martha Runs the World. I think some folks don't want to be responsible for donating on Patreon every month. So instead of giving or donating every month, you can just donate one time for any amount you like, even one or two dollars through Buy Me a Coffee. That's it. And the link will be on MarthaRunsTheWorld.com. There's a logo there, the little cup of coffee. And click on the words, buy me a coffee, and you'll go right to my page. And thank you ahead of time. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Steve. He is a great, great talker. <laughs> he is is very entertaining, and he's a lot of fun. He was a lot of fun to speak with. And the history of his company and how... A company is how a running shoe company is formed is quite fascinating. And I'm sure you know, you've seen the, the ads. They're all over the place. The zero shoe ads are they're all online. If you've watched any YouTube videos, you've seen them. They're omnipotent, as they say. <laughs> so that's up next. And right after that, I'm going to give a review of a pair of zero run shoes that I was given. And it's completely an objective review. I told him, I said, okay, I will, I'm going to review these shoes and give you my honest opinion. So it's completely honest review, which is only the way to do it. And that happens right after this interview. But first off, Steve Sashin. Will you welcome to the program? He's the owner and founder of Zero Shoes. He's also a master sprinter. This is Stephen Sashin. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm very well. I have to be clear, though. I'm the co-founder. Oh. I did this with my wife. Oh, yes. Oh, my apologies. Co-founder and, and co-owner of Zero Shoes. All truth. Yes, yes. Well, how are you today? Uh, you know, it's Monday right now, and so I'm very Monday, which means <laughs> I every time I check my email, there's 50 more, 45 <laughs> of which I get to immediately delete, and five that are like, yeah. So um, uh, busy and uh, excited. Excellent. Excellent. So let's go back a few years, and when did you start running? Doodly-doo, doodly-doo. That's my going back. Music. <laughs> um, I started, well... You know, I was always a sprinter as a kid. And then in high school, when everyone got way taller than me and I did not, um, I stopped sprinting. Also, I was getting shin splints and the coach didn't really know how to deal with that. He said, is there anything you can do that makes it feel better? I said, well, I don't notice it when I'm sprinting. He goes, well, then just keep doing that. And I thought, you're a moron. So um, that was problematic. And I 
focused instead on gymnastics. I became a, an all-American gymnast and I stopped sprinting, which I continued the stopping for the next 30 years. And I picked it back up when I was 45 because a friend of mine came into brunch one day um, bragging about how he just won his first 5K. And I said, well, you know, I was always a sprinter. I'm never a runner. I tried running. That doesn't work for me. And he said, well, you know, there's a whole master's track and field circuit where they have all the events, including all the sprinting events. Like what? So that's uh, that's when I got back into it um, 14 years ago. That is very cool. I love hearing that. What is your favorite distance in sprinting? Uh, my favorite distance is like five meters, but they don't do that race. Uh, and and, I, and I, I'm only half joking because I have a really good start and I've trained with a bunch of Olympians. And for the first five meters, I can beat them. But then after that, uh, you know, all hell breaks loose. So my my favorite is indoor for two reasons. So indoor is either a 50 meter or 60 meter. Um, one, because I'm what they call a true sprinter. I mean, I run a great 50 or 60. I run a good 100. I don't run a good 200. But my other favorite thing uh, is that in most indoor meets, they put a big pad up against the wall so you don't have to slow down. You can just crash into the pad. And I just love doing that. <laughs> so so this is something I always wonder when I watch track and field events. How do you train yourself to start right on the gun? It's a really interesting question. Um, you know, it's my favorite moment in the world, but the moment between set and the gun going off. Because all you can do is be, it's hard to describe. It's like my mind is just totally empty. I'm just waiting. That's the only thing that's happening is just waiting. And the moment the gun goes off, something just happens. Now, you what you train is how to do the start correctly to get your body to do the right motions when the gun goes off and you just react. But it's really just about I mean, the first thing is reacting first and foremost, and then doing the right thing in that reaction. It's um, so you just practice it over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, because it just seems I I'm I get so anxious. It would seem like you just have the false starts would just be so easy to do. Uh, it's a weird thing. It is easy when you're really in waiting mode. It doesn't happen when you move out of that even subtly in your mind that's when it can occur. Um, and the other thing that creates false starts is if somebody next to you just makes a tiny little move, then, you know, away you go and cross your fingers that they got, they're the one who gets caught. Right, right. That's true. How did designing shoes come about? <laughs> uh, a giant accident. Um, one day I uttered the dangerous entrepreneurial words, how hard could this be? And I started a shoe company. And so, um, which is pretty much the mantra that I've had every time I've started some company and I've never had a job. I only start businesses. Um, and it's always based on just unbridled, optimistic naivete. Uh, but that's the only way anything ever happens. So what the hell? Uh, I So when I got back into sprinting, I was getting injured pretty much constantly for the next two years. Like, I don't think I had more than two weeks between injuries. And one day a world champion runner that I know said, try taking off your shoes, running barefoot just to see what you learn. And he handed me a copy of Born to Run also, which, you know, gave me some other inspiration to try running without shoes. And the short form, well, actually, I'll give you a slightly longer version, the medium length version. I was so transfixed by the feeling of running barefoot and getting my feet on the ground on dirt and grass and trails and roads and sidewalks and wooden bridges and everything else. I was running with a group and that 
I, I just, and I kept experimenting with my gait. What happens if I run faster? What happens if I run slower? What happens if I run the same speed, but I take more steps per minute or fewer steps per minute? What happens if I land on this part of my foot or that part of my foot? I just kept, it was just so fascinating. And at the end of this run, I turned to someone who had a GPS watch on and we, and it was only the end of the run because everyone else said, let's stop. I could have kept going forever. It felt. And I said, how far was that? And she said, that was um, a little over 5k. And I was like, sorry, what? I mean, I had never run more than a mile before that. And I didn't like any moment of that because, you know, it was more than a hundred meters. And so <laughs> I, I was just dumbstruck. The other thing that happened is I saw that I had a blister on the ball of my left foot. Now, most people I have discovered in the ensuing years, when they have something like that happen, think, oh, see, this is complete nonsense. I got a blister. This doesn't work for me. I, for one, whatever reason, had two other thoughts. The first was, how come my right foot is fine? And the second was, my left leg is the one that gets injured more often. I wonder if there's a connection. So my next barefoot run a week later, I decided to just to try it and see if I could find a way to run that wasn't hurting the gaping wound <laughs> that I still had on the ball of my left foot, thinking that if I could find a way to run that didn't hurt, I probably wouldn't be doing the thing that caused the blister to begin with. So I thought, all right, I'll give it 10 minutes. If that doesn't work, you know, I'll wait till everything heals. Maybe I'll try again. And after nine minutes and 30 seconds of agony, something changed. Instant, literally in one step, my running got faster, easier, lighter, almost effortless. There was no pain at all. And what I figured out soon thereafter is that I had been overstriding. I had been landing with my foot too far in front of my body. So basically every time I landed, I was putting my, putting the brakes on and as a sprinter, you're supposed to land on the ball of your foot. So I was pointing my toes and landing on the ball of my foot. So that's how I created the blister. And what stopped it is that I stopped overstriding. I put my feet underneath my body. My torso became a little more mm, like a solid spring rather than kind of flexy. I, my posture changed. So my hips were over my feet. My shoulders were over my hips uh, and everything just worked better. And I was able to just adopt that form. My injuries went away, became a master's all American. And I just wanted that natural barefoot like experience as much as I could have it, but I didn't want to have to, you know, get my feet all dirty uh, and step on or in things I didn't like or more. I didn't want to argue with people who owned restaurants and stores about whether it was legal for me to come in there without shoes. Mm. And by the way it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I think you're right about, about stepping into, into things. You don't want to step on glass or anything either. Well, you know, I got to tell you, I love that you said that because it's the first thing that people say often is like, you don't want to step on glass and hypodermic needles. Like when have you stepped on glass and hypodermic needles? I mean, I, I walk in my neighborhood, in my neighborhood, you can. (laughs) Oh, really? Where are you? In San Francisco, in downtown. (laughs) I can tell you, I walked around Manhattan and did 20 miles a day for a week, not because I was trying to put in miles, just because I was walking around. And that's what happened. I lived in New York for a number of years. And so just visiting my friends was just up and down and up and down and up and down. Um, never had a problem because frankly, most of the kinds of things that you would step on like glass, by the time it's on the street, it's been worn down enough that it's really not mm-hmm. a problem. And besides, when you start going around barefoot, you pay attention to where mm-hmm. you're walking. You have removed your shoes. You haven't used them to cover your eyes. That's true. So, That's a good point. Uh, so I've literally, I, I've had, wait, I'm going to count one, two injuries that I can think of from walking around barefoot. And it's the exact same injury for two different reasons, a uh, similar reason. I stubbed my toe. 
and I got a little cut on the, the front edge of my toe. I was walking up my sister's driveway and didn't notice that the that the actual garage pad was two inches higher than the driveway. And then once I was just taking a walk with a friend in downtown Boulder and didn't notice that a rock that was surrounding a tree had you know gotten kicked into the middle of the sidewalk when I was engrossed in the conversation. That's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've now here's the joke. I used to make a living as a street performer and the uh, finale of my act was walking on broken glass on my bare feet. <laughs> Were you one of those kids who always went around barefoot? No. Oh, that's see, that's strange. Yeah, I was pictured. I always thought that you would be one of those kids who always there because there was always one in the group who never wore shoes. <laughs> no, but I but, but the, you don't you know when you're in a group of kids, there's always one kid who doesn't one kid who yeah. doesn't want to put their shoes on. So yeah, that kid doesn't use deodorant either. <laughs> the, the, um, the, no, in fact, you know when you said that, I had this incredibly vivid memory of a, a, a day camp that I went to, a summer day camp that I went to, and just how painful it was to go from where we had our changing rooms to we we're going to put on our bathing suits and go to the pool to walking across the pavement and the rocks to get to the pool. And it was, you know, hot and pointy and it was the worst. I mean, I hated it. Oh, I, mean, yeah. I don't know why they I, did. They, I don't know if they made us go barefoot or not, but man, that was, that was a horrible memory. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I remember I going to therapy barefoot. now. Hold on. I need, <laughs> I have to go see a hypnotist or something. I, I see the picture of you in sandals and I've seen trail runners i've been in ultra races and tra- and they've worn sandals and it's just oh, yeah. like hey if it, if it works for them that's great well let's pause there it worked for all of humanity for <laughs> ten thousand plus years the modern <laughs> running shoe is only 50 years old it's a brand new intervention there is no evidence that it's in any way better than anything else that humans have been doing for millennia before that in fact right. the first um, recorded history of footwear is about 40,000 years, but the oldest footwear that's been recovered is about 10,000 years. And footwear is designed to do one simple thing, protect your foot. And then you need something to add that, to hold that protection on. That's it. And that's mm-hmm. what a good pair of sandals can do. Yeah. Yeah. So, now, by so the way, sorry, I'm going to interrupt again. Go ahead. I'm not suggesting that you go run in sandals, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying you can, because mm-hmm. all of humans have, we have people who've run ultra marathons and 256 K races across Madagascar in a pair of sandals, people mm-hmm. who've hiked every trail in the world in a pair of sandals. Again, not saying you should actually wait, just reminded me, <laughs> do, do you ever see the, there's an actor named Eric Bogosian who got famous. Uh, he did an off Broadway show it was a bunch of characters that he did. And one of the characters was a, an aging rocker who uh, that it, like being interviewed on a talk show. And he's saying, you know, I just want to say something to the kids. Um, I've taken a lot of drugs. I've had some of my best times on stage on drugs. I've written some of the best music on drugs. I've had the greatest experiences of my life on drugs. But that doesn't mean you should do them. <laughs> and, and so, um, so I feel kind of like that with sandals. Like, you know, it's great, but that doesn't mean you need to do it. But I will say, if you're wearing regular shoes, when you get done, you know, active recovery is hugely important. And just wearing a pair of sandals is a great way to do that. And not just flip flops, because those are actually bad for your feet. But Sandals are a great way to do that. And more, uh, Dr. Isabel Sacco in Brazil demonstrated that just by strengthening your feet, by doing an exercise program for your feet, that runners in regular shoes had two and a half times fewer injuries than runners who didn't do the strengthening. And research from Dr. Sarah Ridge shows that just walking in a pair of minimalist shoes or sandals can build foot muscle strength as much as doing an exercise program. 
So if you put those two things together, seems like a really good idea if you're wearing regular shoes to spend as much time out of them and in something that lets your feet do what's natural to build strength and agility and mobility. That sounds really smart. I When I get done with the race, I mean, the first thing I do is I want to take the shoes off. I mm-hmm. just want to walk around a little bit at the apartment, my yep. bare feet. So yep. that sounds really, really smart. Uh, and what was her, what was her name again? Well, the first one is Isabel I S A B E L Isabel mm-hmm. Sacco S A C C O. Okay, and the and she did another bit of research where she put uh, women who were over sixty five who had knee osteoarthritis, not self reported knee pain, actual X rays showing osteoarthritis. She put them in uh, cheap minimalist shoes that you can get in Brazil for like seven bucks, and had them just walk around. And in six months, uh, most of them their osteoarthritis went away. And, uh, many, a couple of them started running for the first time because they were able to move. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, anyway, that's an aside, but so Isabel Sacco Mm -hmm. and then Sarah Ridge, R-I-D-G-E, her research was on foot strengthening and minimalist footwear. Oh, cool. Okay. I'm going to look them both up. Thank you so much. That's very cool. Um, now if, if someone wants to try your shoes, but has never worn a minimal shoe, I know you, you can't just start wearing them all the time because that's what well, that it might depends. cause. It well, depends, depends for, on what you're going to do. Well, if like, yes, like for me, okay. Like, like, like for me, I can't just wear, uh, uh, I have high arches and, and I find if I wear a shoe without support for those high arches, I get terrible, terrible cramps in my feet. Well, so here's the joke. Nobody okay. said you can't, no one said you shouldn't put orthotics in a minimalist shoe. Oh, okay. You can yeah. then. I mean, what the hell? In fact, okay. oh. in fact, I got two stories. Okay. Part one is we provide the best platform for an orthotic. Think about it. Oh, when they, when they uh, fit you for an orthotic, they have you standing on a flat surface. Mm-hmm. Then they put the orthotic in a shoe that isn't flat. It's got an elevated heel and it's got a, an, uh, already has a built-in arch. So that shoe is interfering with what they just built for you. Well, I wear ultras, so I don't really use the elevator heel. I okay. like the, I like the say for normal humans. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a problem. The second thing, here's a story. I was at the international footwear and ankle biomechanics uh, conference. And there was a guy there who's like one of the top orthotics guys in the world. And he said, uh, you know, I wonder what it's like in your shoes. And I said, well, try him. And he goes for a walk and he says, well, what'd you notice? I said, well, what'd you notice? And he said, well, they felt really comfortable. And, you know, I, I didn't notice anything else. I said, well, I saw that your right foot was pronating a tiny bit more when you didn't have the orthotic in. Uh, but pronation, by the way, is not a problem. There's no, there's literally not one study that proves a connection between pronation and injury. But ignoring that, I said, so, but here's the important part. You didn't notice. And if you want to build strength, you need to use your body. So my suspicion is, that by using your body, by not wearing the orthotic in the shoe, you can build some strength. And a different story for a high arch thing, and I'll come back to that. But then he came up to a woman named Dr. Irene Davis, who is a top researcher at Harvard. And he said, um, kind of, you know, wanted to rib her a little and said, hey, I love these shoes, but I'm going to put my orthotic in it. And he laughed and she goes, that's cool. But then you just want to try going to a less supportive orthotic and less and less and less and just like wean yourself off slowly and see what that does. And so for higher arch people, it's a similar recommendation, but you just add that have to add one other bit, which is just some mobility. So typically high arches, some of arch height is predominantly genetic, but some of it is whether you're the tendons and muscles and ligaments in your feet and ankles 
are lax, which can lead to flat feet. I had comically flat feet my whole life until I started going barefoot. And then I developed an arch and strong feet and the whole shape of my foot changed. And for high arch people, they tend to be hypertonic. They tend to have more tension. And so mobility and massage can be really helpful as you start getting used to um, still building a different kind of strength, a strength in motion rather than rather than um, being locked in place. And sorry, one last thought about arch support for the average human. Research that was, I think, led by uh, Katrina Protopapas showed that putting arch support in the shoes of healthy individuals over 12 weeks, they lost up to 17% of the muscle mass in their feet. Tell me how weaker is better than stronger. You're right. That is fascinating. See, you're, you're really making me think here. <laughs> and I like that. I really like that. I like getting a different point of view and something that I had never thought about or that I had not thought in this way about. So that this means is you're great. weird. I know I'm so weird. <laughs> I have an open mind. Isn't that weird? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's actually just a thing about human evolution is that we didn't evolve to second guess what we believe. We learned, you know, how to adopt beliefs around things like, is that grass moving in such a way that the thing hiding behind it is going to eat me or am I going to eat it? Mm-hmm. And we lock onto those decisions mm-hmm. because having to rethink that every time means eventually you're going to be food. And so uh, when we believe something, we it's evolutionarily and energetically disadvantageous to second guess it. And so that's why people believe things and you can give them factual information that conflicts with their belief and they will believe what they believe even harder because, it, again, it's just, you know, we're not wired to go, huh, which is a shame. We'll be right back. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is true. And, and it's also kind of scary to have your, have your beliefs questioned. And well, you know, I think neurologically, there's a connection or some closeness between the way we hold beliefs in our brain and our self identity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I say this because when I talk to people about things they believe that may not be true, um, and I never try to give them counterfactuals. I never try to say, here's a, instead of what you believe, here's this other thing. I'll just point out some issues with what they believe. Like, you know, we didn't land on the moon. It was all fake. It's like, um, we didn't have computers back then. So what was the fake part? Uh, and, um, or whatever it is. But when I, when I can, when I talk to people about, you know, some beliefs that many of us would find crazy and some of us may believe, uh, they, the more I pick apart the problems in their story, the more they start acting like I'm trying to kill them and their children. And it occurred to me that that would only be the case if they felt literally threatened for their life. And why would that be? And I think it is because beliefs and, and the sense of self are somehow closely tied. Yeah, that's true. I wanted to ask you something when, when you were starting your company, you actually went on shark tank, right? It's about two and a half years in. Yeah. 
Wow. What was that like? Awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I mean, first, first, how did you get on? Well, first we had people saying, you know, after we started the business, you guys should be on Shark Tank. And we're like, what the hell's that? And so then we watched all the, the previous episodes. And then we watched the episodes from the original Dragon's Den that was in Canada and actually the original Dragon's Den from the UK. We didn't watch the original one from Japan because there was no translations. And we we're going like everyone, you watch that show and you think you imagine being on both sides of the equation, like being the, the entrepreneur and being the investor, which is why, pardon me, I got the hiccups, why that show is um, so engaging. And we we're thinking, yeah, we should be on Shark Tank. We'd be great. And we sent an email in. Um, and then found out that they only do casting during a small window of time. So the moment they announced casting for the 2013 season, I sent uh, an email. And then a week later, I sent a video that I made. And they have they go through every email. They went through like 36,000 of them. Mm -hmm. And we got a phone call from one of the um, lower level producers who interviewed us on a Thursday afternoon for about an hour, hour and a half and said, uh, we'd love to get a video of you answering these 5,000 questions in five minutes, and uh, and we need it by Monday. And I said, no problem. And my wife was freaking out because she had been planning a surprise 50th birthday party for me that weekend. So, um, so that stressed her out, but we, we, we shot. And they, oh, and this is funny also. They said, um, and don't edit it. I said, how come? They said, well, when people edit it, it always ends up looking ridiculous. And I said, well, I have a master's degree in film. And they said, oh, do whatever you want. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't edit it. We did it all in one take. Now it took like 50 tries to do it in one take, but we sent them, you know, the one take version. And then we filled out this application, which you have to handwrite and you can't read my handwriting or my wife's handwriting. So we had to hire someone off of Craigslist <laughs> to write it. And, um, uh, and we submitted the application and then they called us back and said, here's a contract. And it's this onerous, crazy one-sided contract that, it, that has things like, you know, we're not going to hold you responsible if we die on set. It's like, what's going to happen on set? <laughs> they said, no, no, no. We, this contract has evolved from all the shows that we've done. And so that clause came in when we produced uh, Survivor. It's like, oh, okay. So we signed the contract and they said, Hey, we'd like you on the show. And they said, you know, we'll have you come out in like eight weeks. It's like, oh, all right. Well, okay. And then a couple of weeks later, they called and said, we need you out here in three days. And there you go. And so it was, um, it was real. It was, it was very challenging. We read all the autobiographies of all the sharks. We just want to know how they thought and what they were into. We practiced incessantly. We had friends who were big deal investors grill us. We talked to people who bought shoe companies, sold shoe companies, invested in shoe companies, um, uh, just to you know figure out what we wanted to ask for an offer. Uh, and like in the two weeks before the show, I don't think Lena and I had a conversation. We just kept repeating our opening pitch over and over and over, uh, which we never got through in the actual show. We got interrupted like five seconds in, but that's okay. Uh, and then being on the show, and by the way, if you go to zeroshoes.com slash shark tank, then you'll be able to see it. We turned down an offer from Kevin because it was a ridiculous offer and we didn't know what was going to happen. They tape more segments than they air. So we didn't know if we'd even be on the show. And then they only tell you a couple of weeks in advance. So at the end of 2012, we took a vacation. I went to, we had frequent flyer points and went to visit friends who were living in Ecuador. And like the moment we landed, we got an email saying, Hey, you're going to be on the show in three weeks. Like, ah, so, um, and we didn't know how it was going to look because they tape for longer than the actual segment. So we were in the tank for like 
I don't know, 45 minutes, but it's a 10 minute segment. And so, in fact, here's a behind the scenes thing. We said to our producers, we're afraid you're going to make us look like idiots because if you cut this the right way, you can. And they said, we don't ever want to make people look bad. If you see people where it looks bad, they were probably way worse in real life, but we're a Disney owned network. We want people to want to be on the show. We don't want to look like it's a horrible experience. And so, um, and that was borne out. We know someone who had a very bad experience on the show and the way when their episode aired, um, she looked pretty good because, you know, she's a smart, funny, attractive woman, just said a couple of things that were not the right answer, but looked pretty good. Not nearly as bad as the way she described it. Conversely, I have a friend who um, it, it often says they gave me a horrible edit and they made me look like a total ass. And I said to him, I know you pretty well. And um, you got a really good edit. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's just how you look at yourself. Yeah, you know, he's just he's just not fit for human consumption. Which, which <laughs> I, you know, we get along really well, but for many people find him very hard to handle. Yeah. Well, so what what are some of the difficulties in starting a shoe company? Everything. <laughs> Seriously, this is the most difficult thing I can imagine uh, because there's just so many moving parts, uh, many of which you don't control. And uh, what I can say is about seven months after we started the business, we had some guys who we met socially who had all been in the footwear industry for about 35 years at that time. And they said to us, you know, we believe in you and we believe in what you're doing. Natural movement is the most important thing and no one's doing it right now. And we would start this company with you, except we've been in footwear so long that we're not stupid enough to try and start a shoe company. So <laughs> it's... That makes uh, you feel good. Well, you know, we actually said, like I said before, we know we're hyper-optimistic and naive, but that's the only way anything starts. So, you know, how hard could this be? And uh, harder than they let on. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> it's, um, it, it is, I mean, it's challenging every step of the way. Uh, and if I went through every step, it would take us days. It is really flat out crazy. Uh, and And from just what it takes to build any business. I mean, people ask me all the time, what advice do you have for a budding entrepreneur? And I say, oh, this is easy. Get a government job with a pension. Uh, just this is <laughs> crazy town. And that's just, you know, normal business things. Then you add into it the difficulty of manufacturing. And it doesn't matter if you're manufacturing in your backyard, in your garage, next door, down the street, or on the other side of the planet. It's really, 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 really hard because there's a lot of people who get involved with footwear. There's still a lot of humans and that will never change. And when humans are involved, problems happen. And when people have different motives, and this is going to sound weird. So um, there's a, there's a great book called poorly made in China, which is not about how things are poorly made and, or the idea that things made in China are poorly made far from the case, but it's about how it's really about how the way manufacturers in China think is very different than the way Americans think. And by the way, just to, again, as a caveat, I know people who manufacture domestically, which we literally cannot do. It's not possible to do what we're doing domestically in the same way that it's not possible to get a domestically made version of the devices we're using for this conversation. Um, and the people who manufacture domestically, same problems as people who are manufacturing anywhere else in the world. But in China, you know, the idea um, business people think that if you give them the specs for how to make something and you leave out any little bit 
that gives them an opportunity to find a way to do that less expensively, which will give them, make them more money. And they think that that is um, a point of pride. That's their job is to find a way to give you a good price and squeeze a little bit extra for them because you didn't know to ask for something. And that's a completely valid worldview. It's a completely consistent way of seeing how to operate in the world. It's just inconsistent between the way we think in America and other people think. And that book is amazing. It's a real cross-cultural expose where you really can understand that there's a whole different way of viewing the world and your role in it that makes total sense somewhere else and makes conflicts when it comes up against a different worldview and not, and one is not better than the other necessarily. So it's really, in fact, I would argue that the way that the Chinese people think about it could be fundamentally better in many, many ways. Um, like with the whole thing about them stealing intellectual property in their mind, it's like, no, if someone invents something good, it's an honor to then copy it and share it with more people than they could do on their own. And they're thinking, if you think what we're doing is better than you, why are you trying to steal our stuff? That's what you're supposed to do. So it's, it's a, it's a really fascinating thing when you start dealing with other cultures and realize that your personal set of beliefs, back to beliefs, is not necessarily better than theirs and may in fact be less um, advantageous. There's so much to think about when you're, when you have to have something manufactured in a different part of the world and then have it shipped over, I mean, to deal with the shipping problems and oh, everything God. like that, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother, whole but, nother but, story. But, but again, let's back up to, you know, we've all played telephone yes. and we know that within three people, the message is completely changed. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with manufacturing things, right. no matter where you're doing it. Right. Right. Well, you seem to have, it under control now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Maybe yeah. cross yeah, fingers. You know, ducks smooth on top, paddling like crazy underneath. <laughs> um, so. Well, that's the way of the world, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it, it is. I mean, we, you know, we've got a lot of things under control, and then there's things that are out of our control, like this yeah. you know, whole supply chain thing and shipping thing that you mentioned. Oh, so yeah. we're you, Lena. Early on, Lena said to me one day, she was really upset. She says, "I feel like I don't know what I'm doing." And I said, no one knows what no, they're doing. No one knows. What you're doing. You <laughs> no. know, you have to figure, your job is to figure it out on the fly. Like I like to say, a biggest part of our job is figuring out how to put out the fires that started overnight, despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday. Yeah. And so it's a constant process of doing that, figuring mm-hmm. out you know what you need to learn to be able to take the next step without falling on your face. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very much. So what's ahead in 2022 for a you lot. and your company? What's a going lot. on? Yeah, we've been growing like crazy because frankly, what happens is people put on shoes like ours and have that experience of using their body naturally and they just can't go back. And so word of mouth has been the biggest thing that has been driving mm-hmm. our business since day one. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're just, we're making more. One of the things that's happened is our product line expands because customers tell us what they want next. So when we had a do-it-yourself sandal kit, they went, that's great, but I don't want to make it myself. So we came up with a way of doing a ready-to-wear version. They said, that's great, but I don't like a thong between my toes, even though this is not a flip-flop. It's a very different thing. You don't feel that. They said, they don't want that. It's like, so we made a sport sandal with webbing that goes across your foot. They go, that's great. But what about winter when it's cold and I can't wear sandals or when I need to go to work? So we made a closed toe shoe and it just keeps doing that. 
So we have a bunch of new products that are launching in 2022, some in the end of February, some in August. Um, we are, we've been growing like crazy. We have just, I, I, there's people who work here who I haven't met yet, which is a weird feeling. So we're trying to do that. We're opening a new warehouse. Um, we're, we're partnering with, um, we've got three Olympic teams currently and about four or five more that we're talking to. We have some athletes going to the winter Olympics, which is very exciting. Um, and, uh, that's really it. I mean, the gist of it is we have a lot of plans for giving more and more people the ability to discover the fun and benefits of natural movement and the live life feet first. That is very cool. Uh, it makes me very interested. I think I'm going to have to try out a pair in the, in the near future here myself and I, see what they feel guy, like. I know a guy who knows a guy who can probably hook you up. Okay. Sounds cool. Sounds very, very cool. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been a very, very educational experience for me. I knew nothing about mi- minimal shoes at all. And now I seems like I know a whole lot more. Good. Well, so, um, I, I hope it was useful. And, yeah. Um, and uh, again, you know, I'm not trying to talk people out of doing mm-hmm. things they do. I'm just trying to give people an opportunity to do again what humans have been doing for as long as we've been humans. Very, very cool. And best of luck in everything. This has been a thank lot you. of fun. I've really thank enjoyed talking with you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, and have have a great year. And I hope it's very prosperous for you. Take care. Me and many other people both. (laughs) (laughs) Bye bye. Thank you so much, Steve. I truly appreciate you being on my show. It was great, great talking to you and learning a lot more about minimalist shoes because I would really started at a base of nothing way down here. And now I know a lot more about them. So I truly appreciate it. Okay. Zero shoes. I've seen their ads everywhere. I heard their ads. I've watched their ads. I really saw their shoes and I said, well, I don't know if they're for me or not. So I had a pair sent to me. They were, they were the HFS lightweight running shoes. The, I picked out the blue color. They're very pretty shoes and I'll get into the, the pros first. And I said, okay, I'll try them out. I'll try with walking and working in them all day and see how they feel. And and I haven't run in them. I've just used them basically for walking because I haven't really run that much, but I've used them for walking. And here are the pros and the cons. Okay, the pros are if you're just looking at them, as, look at them as, a, as just a look of a shoe. They're very good looking. They have lots of different colors. You can choose from all kinds of different colors, and that's a big plus for me. Comfort, they're very, very comfortable. The top of the shoe, the material on the top of the shoe is extremely comfortable. It's probably the most comfortable shoe I've ever ever had, I've ever worn as far as a running shoe. That top material that they use is so comfortable. I can't believe how comfortable it is. It just feels so nice on my foot. It's. I wore these shoes the 12 hour days in the clinic and it felt great all day for 12 hours. It just felt really good. They're very good on the feet. They're very nice as far as that goes. I didn't mind the minimal 
part of it. I didn't mind it. My feet never got tired. They 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 felt fine in them all day. That was fine. Everything felt good. The the only the big there's one drawback with them. That's the pros. The con I have, and I don't know if I. I'm going to have to keep wearing them because I don't know if I will buy them because of this. Is that the bottom sole? It feels plasticky, and it doesn't feel grippy. I felt like I was going to slide on them. It feel felt kind of slick, and it didn't have that rubbery, grippy feel that my other shoes have. That felt kind of. It didn't feel. As safe to me as my grippy shoes, and maybe that's why they last so long. The the o, zero shoes says they can last five thousand miles. Well, maybe that's because of the the material that the that the sole is made out of is more plastic than rubber, so that the rubber ones wear down faster. But if they feel safe to me, I, and maybe that's just a feeling of it. Maybe it's not. Maybe they're just as safe and grippy. They just don't feel that safe to me. I, I went down one of the steepest hills at Knob Hill uh, one time from the bus. I had to get down towards Powell Street. I had to pick up a package at one of the places, one of the Amazon package places at 7-Eleven by Powell Street. So I had to go down an extremely steep hill and I felt really, it felt very, very not safe in that shoe. I felt like I was going to slip. So I didn't feel right to me. Maybe that's me. Maybe that's just because I'm not used to that material on the sole, but I just couldn't feel like I could trust it. So that's why I haven't run in those shoes because I don't want to slip. And I haven't run, walked in them in the rain. That's another thing. I don't know if I can trust them in the rain. Again, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's um, uh, uh, an error that I'm making, but that's how I feel about them. So I'm going to give them more time. I'm going to see how it feels. I'm going to see if that wears a little bit down a little bit and gets a little less slick. So we'll see. I'll keep wearing them because they're very comfy and I don't mind that. And walking in them is fine as long as it's not a super steep hill <laughs> or raining. <laughs> and we don't get a lot of rain here and and I can avoid those super steep hills. So that is that. So um, it, And they may feel great for you. You may not feel that. That may just be me. And if you're looking for something minimalistic, I think they're great shoes. It's a nice little company. They're doing something different and trying something that none of the other companies seem to be doing. So if that's if that's what you're looking for, go for it. I think it's great. Okay. As I said in the beginning of the show, buy me a coffee. Link is up. Please support. You can support the podcast that way. Throw me a buck or two one time and that's it. Then you're done. You don't have to remember every month. Okay, that is it for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. I truly appreciate it. Remember, the website is MarthaRunsTheWorld.com. The email is MarthaRunsTheWorld at gmail.com. Please send me a race report. That would be terrific. And I will see you next week. And until next week, let's tie up our shoelaces and go for a run.